Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. This is Dr. Bill Sinyard. We are going through the Book of Romans uh, as part of a men's study that I'm part of. I'm also reading Gordon Fee's book on the Holy Spirit. And we're calling it Romans, the Book of Microaggressions. And this is part three. We're looking at two of the more familiar verses in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, interesting comment. Why would anybody be ashamed of it? We'll see. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Uh, verse 17, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So the way we typically read uh, verse 16 is that if you believe, you, I mean, you step up, you're convinced, you believe, then the power of God gives you salvation. That's how we typically see this. And I'm going to suggest that's exactly not what Paul is talking about, because why would that be uh, a shameful aspect of the gospel? There's another way that this is really clear. All right, so a reminder, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Romans from the point of view of a modern Western Christian, think millennial, who's arguably very self-aware of microaggressions in the community and in religion and in society. So they're sensitive to being shamed. They're sensitive to being seen as a failure or falling short of expectations, of being labeled. Right? We want to protect ourselves and our identity from anything that makes me look bad or feels bad or feel threatened that can cause me to be unliked, subject to judgment, uh, and labels such as racist or homophobic and the like. And so and we certainly hate being told that we've messed up or fallen short or worse, we can't do something. We're a failure that's it's something so important to our identity, our sense of who we are, our livelihood. And that's the core of shame is to believe that I've fallen short of expectations of people that I care about. Um, and it affects how they feel about me or I believe that and how they uh, feel towards me. So let me relate this to theology as Paul does. Since the Enlightenment, at least, we have wanted to believe that we could choose to believe, that that was our role. And if only the arguments of Christians were relevant enough or pointed enough and, of course, smart enough and caused us to uh, come to a decision point and we would see the reasonableness of our faith, our prefrontal cortex would go, oh, yeah, well, why didn't somebody tell me? And then choose to believe. And so we focused a great deal on rational apologetics, uh, uh, strategic approaches that help people see the irrationality of living as atheists and agnostics, and the strategic benefits of choosing to be children of God, choosing to believe. I can remember uh, personally choosing a class on the theology of the Trinity as one of my first courses at seminary because. I wanted to be able to rationally explain the Trinity to other Christians, as well as the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses that would come to the door. I wanted to be able to explain it so clearly, right, that others would see and repent of their bad theology and come to believe. I don't, don't misunderstand. I wasn't a total functional deist. I knew I needed God's help uh, to give me this rational uh, momentum uh, that he would cause their brains to see the reasonableness of my arguments. And so I did pray that God would, would intervene. But honestly, come on, honestly, come on. At the end of the day, I was pretty sure that the result was based upon my skill, my prowess, my success at making a believable, repeatable case. And 
Christian bookstores were filled, the, 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 the shelves were filled with books on how to argue for. And same thing for the existence of God, the deity of Jesus, the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. Teachers arise and make this difficult stuff clear so that people would finally get it. And then revival would happen and then people would believe, right? And so you can see why I feel offense, particularly by Paul's choice of words in Romans 1.16. This gospel of God, this separate entity, this gospel of God, is not reliant upon my ability to define it, to teach it, to offer it, to explain it, to package it, it would seem. It is a thing of its own. It's a power to save, with or without me. In fact, it is, Paul argues, the power of God to save. All right, some thoughts. So, is it that reasonable people just need to be convinced of the veracity and viability, the good news of the gospel? Or do people actually need first a miraculous power that only comes from God himself, that it needs to happen in order to make them see the gospel and believe? If it's the latter, I feel a microaggression coming on. Look, if God's hand is not only required, but solely responsible for unbelievers coming to belief, then what's my role? Why am I hanging around? Why do I need to defend the faith, have an answer ready? Why teach? Why evangelize? Why argue for the faith? The only thought that comes to my mind is that our Heavenly Father, and this makes sense, right? He's so interested in sharing glory with us that he conspires to use us to be part of the miracle. I mean, think of Jesus and the disciples. But no mistake, It's his power alone that's required to take a shamed, unbelieving outsider, an enemy of God, and then to make them his child of faith. I mean, partly it's brain science. Our brains are so messed up, so confused, so fearful, so boundaried, so shamed, that reason's not enough. Let me give you an example. Think of an addict. Surely all addicts know that addiction is harmful, destructive, irrational, and if their goal is success, satisfaction, and joy, then they would turn away from their addiction. And yet, what drives them to the next drink, the, now, the next self-medication, the next porn site? Well, partly it's a very powerful chemical in their brain that's formed a loop, and it's not affected by their prefrontal cortex almost at all. You can put them in class after class, and you're not going to see any change. In fact, what happens is you end up shaming them even more, which drives them even more to their self-medication, and this loop gets tightened. And it's the nature of the world's self-sufficiency. It's an addiction. It's riddled with dopamine hits. When I succeed, I feel dopamine. When I succeed apart from God, I feel dopamine. And the cycle continues. So to think that we can just convince people that it that self-sufficiency is ultimately bad for them and that there is a God who loves them more than even they love themselves, that that's the real source of joy, really? Well, it's going to lead to shame and more self-medication and denial over and over and over and over. Something needs to break the cycle. And Paul says that one thing is the power of the gospel. And that doesn't come from you. That doesn't come from me. What about our vaulted free will and choice? Romans 10, 9 to 10, just choose. Well, Simply put, those whom God has resurrected, right, who have been affected by the power of God, they also have saving faith. And that saving faith ignites a choice. That's the order. 
It's the saving faith that is, is the fruit, not the root. And, and so that no one would boast. I mean, do we see where faith is actually a fruit of the Spirit? Yeah, in the list of fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, your translation will call it faithfulness, but it's the same Greek word, pistis, and it's used over 20 times in the rest of the letter, and every other time it's translated as faith. But here and only here, uh, the modern commentaries translate it faithfulness. That's just really too bad. It's misleading. Faithfulness strikes me, I think, in normal use of something I do. Uh, Faith, on the other hand, as a fruit of the Spirit, is what God does in me and through me so that no one would boast. And it seems that God gives us this pistis through the Holy Spirit in our inner being, and it's very powerful. And one of its roles is to make me believe the good news of the gospel, that God actually loves me as I am. Well, Okay, in, in some ways that's good news, but i got to tell you, I'm, I'm offended that I need such a helper. I want to do it on my own. I want to work hard. I want to think of myself as good. This is the American way, right? So why do I need a power from God to follow? It, that portrays humanity in a bad light, I think, and very distant from God, against God, entrenched, blinded by our own power and well-being and self-sufficiency and success, our morality, that we don't really need God or salvation, uh, and far beyond just being convinced. It seems like Paul is saying, good luck with that convincing, that Paul actually has to go into our midbrain and forcefully rewire a few things apart from our approval, our permission, and here and there, and not only... But not only to make me see, but also to be actually willing to choose to, first of all, admit that I've been an enemy of God, that I actually deserve judgment, uh, and, and to see that I am actually have been living my life ashamed to look up at this God that I denied, and that I actually need a power. I'm that helpless to believe that God would draw me close, that he would ever love me, by the way, as I am, without probation or strings or me becoming perfect. I hate it that I'm that helpless, that when I, when God found me, I was dead in sin, the Bible says, right? I mean, do I really believe that? So come on, isn't it clear why we need gospel power? We've lived our lives distant from God and scared to death of a God, if there ever was one, that I couldn't manipulate or control. We needed a prevenient operation of the Spirit uh, to make us see, to make us believe, to make us come out from behind the trees of the garden in our little leaf loincloths, to be willing to see God's loving eyes and to be able to receive that. We will not come apart from his active making us come. Well, that's a microaggression. And that's, that's in your face, right? Don't you feel judged when you hear that? I don't like hearing that Humanity is that far away from God, so unwilling, so unable to bow, so consciously or subconsciously a rebel to my creator, unable, something's broken inside of me that I can't experience his love. Shame, right? We're far worse. I'm far worse than I've suspected. And you you know that we're infected with those enlightenment notions that everybody's been born good and pristine, but the world, the dark world has infected us. Um... You know, we, we thought, we had been told that we were able to achieve anything that we could uh, do on our own, put, we could put our mind to, particularly if we only educated people enough, right? 
Well, that's prefrontal cortex again. But Paul says that no one would come to God unless God grabs them unwillingly, right, uh, without permission, and then makes them, again, against their wills, to look up into his eyes, to give them a new will, a new heart. Paul refers this to an apocalypto. It's the, the word is revealing, a, a revealing a mystery of the heavenlies that we have to be made to see. It is made known to us, right? We can't just see it or be convinced of it. It has to be revealed to us that previously could not be seen, and only God does the revealing. And what's revealed? Righteousness from God. All right, righteousness. The root of righteous and righteousness is relational. The right question of the gospel is this. How can someone who is broken, who is a rebel, unfaithful, self-focused, self-centered, unbelieving, fearful, ashamed, who struggles with loving and being loved, that's us, all of us, wherein God finds us. How can that person, how can I ever be in a healthy relationship with a God who is the opposite of all those things, right? Imagine how uncomfortable that would be. How could we ever be right, God and, and me, God and you. A couple of answers. Well, here's here's a bad answer, but maybe this sounds more prefrontal cortexian. I can become right. I can begin to choose to love God with all my heart, however you do that. I mean, whatever trigger you do, you pull to do that. And then love others, including my enemies, the same way as I love myself. Good luck with that. And then somehow make up for all the times, the years and months and days I didn't. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. I've never pulled it off. Or two, God can do this miracle, uh, this power. He can make it happen, by the way, apart from you. In fact, it can happen 2,000 years ago. I'm sorry for the tenses here and the, and the weirdness of time. But, but this is the simple, uncluttered gospel. Jesus' follower, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God absolutely loves you. He does love you with all of his heart, as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better, but not so. How do you experience it more now? Simple. Good news, there's something you can do and are invited to do. You can daily, you can take daily baby steps to ask the Spirit inside of you to make you know, experience, and feel just how much God loves you right now. In other words, God has to do a wild miracle to make you get that he adores you as you are. Right now, in Romans terms, he makes this truth alive to you, real to you, revealed to you through his Spirit and in your inner being. But then you need that power every day. Uh, it's, it's humiliating. And, and so you have to ask every day. You're, that's your participation. I don't like that because I want to show myself righteous. I want to be fixed, right? But God, but Paul has learned to not be ashamed of this truth, the way God is working, right? You can see why he says I'm not ashamed of it. Uh, Paul sees the benefit of it. He's experienced of it. And he'll talk about it in Romans 8. But erudite, educated Romans, right? Uh, the, the upper class, you're so far off base, you can't be convinced. You have a choice as a free agent, but you will not choose. Your brain's way too self-protective, too stuck in the cycle. You need to be reborn and resurrected by a power you don't have. I don't even have it. You can't do it. I can't convince you. God needs to make you 
you will see just how powerless you really are. And it will hurt for a moment, to be sure. And when you first start hearing this, you're not going to like it. All right, let me put this in a, in a narrative. This is Paul speaking to the Romans, right? I'm just making this up. Hey, Romans, looking forward to come to chat with you about this gospel of Jesus. So here it is. First, there's no way any of you are ever going to come to Christ on your own. I get that, right? What Jesus accomplished is just crazy. It's not reasonable at all. You're not going to like it. That God would love you the same as he loves his own son. Come on, how is your brain going to process that? Your, your brain is going to be suspicious of that. A revolt against the idea is going to look for loopholes. So I can come and do class after class, and even the smartest among you, the brightest, the most moral, the most religious, and all of you will reject it. You're, you're going to come short, not even close. Sorry, that's the bad news. Well, the good news is I want to tell you about a power that comes from God that can bend your vaunted free will to be resurrected, brought to new life, so that you could actually believe. And believe the crazy, the craziness of the gospel. And by the way, this is the same for an educated Roman senator as it is for an uneducated slave. How does that sound to you? <laughs> and by the way, God's love is the same for both. How does that sound? Is that good? Man, no. The first reaction is, what is this? Charles Spurgeon is reported to have said, every now and then, I hear it attributed to some great preacher of the past that the gospel, or sometimes the Bible, is like a lion, or sometimes a tiger. The idea is that it doesn't need to be defended. It just needed to be let out of the cage. So, we can and should preach and teach and argue for the gospel, but nothing. Nothing will happen in the hardened heart of even the most enlightened, kind person until the Spirit baptizes them in power. And then things really start to happen. People will feel this new faith bursting from their inner being. They will act out, choosing, following, repenting, giving, worshiping, all those God things. It's exciting to watch. But God gets all the credit. Paul will say it again in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace... Right? That doesn't come from you, that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. How clear could Paul be? Grace and faith, those both are the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's not about how smart you are. Isn't that good news? Because God can reach into the, the heart of, of a person who just can't think these thoughts. Uh, they may be catatonic. Uh, who knows? Uh, but but God can actually make them believe still. I think it's just great news. Now, I would prefer, back to microaggression, to think that the image bearers of God, us, are more evolved and enlightened than that, that we might just need to be made an appropriate offer, right? A reasonable offer, but no. Uh, on a scale of 0 to 10, with 0 being Satan's relationship with God and 10 being Jesus' relationship with God, we want to think that we're hovering naturally, right, before we come to Christ, somewhere between a 7 and an 8, when God's gospel finds us, right? We're pretty good. We want to be better. We're not evil, but we want to be better. We're not wicked, but we want to be better, right? We're not animals, but I suspect that we're closer to hovering around a 1 or a 2. We desperately need a Savior. We're more like Lazarus after four days. How silly would it have been for Jesus to dig up Lazarus' body and do a class on Romans, right, for it. No, it needs resurrection. It's dead. It was dead in its sins. And only Jesus has that power, not me.
Ephesians 3:16. Paul writes, I pray out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's God's power through your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You know, that sounds like salvation faith to me. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, meaning stop trying to figure it out, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Whatever that means. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according, according to his power that is at work within us. There it is. How clear can Paul be? To him be glory to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Paul, done, Paul says that God doesn't come to me because I'm good, because I'm worthy. Uh, I don't know why God comes to me, but he did. And then God made me believe. You know, Paul gets it that there is none saved apart from this new life being shoved down our throats. Nothing to be ashamed of. Paul understands after great thought, but I'll tell you. There are times that I feel a bit of a microaggression coming on. Because, God, I thought I was better. Well, uh, we'll pick it up next time uh, on the Gospel Rant. Uh, Romans, a book of microaggressions. Until that time, take heart, child of God. Hello, this is Dr. Doug Grotheis, host of Truth Tribe where we seek the truth through reason and evidence about what matters most. And we are not tribal since truth is for everyone. Please join me at the Truth Tribe as I discuss the reasons for Christian faith, the Christian worldview, and moral issues such as abortion and gender ideology. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search Truth Tribe on your favorite podcast app.